Our scripture reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together? to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, thank you, Eric, for reading that passage, Ananias and Sapphira. Um, What a text. (laughs) So we're just going to get right into it. And let me start it by asking the the question, um, what are the lies you tell to paint yourself in a better light? What are they? Because there's a force that pulls on us that's like the force of gravity, I think, and it's this desire to present ourselves in the best way that we can. And part of what's at play there is that inside each and every one of us, to some degree or another, is a measure of dishonesty. That we know how to lie. How do we lie? There are seven basic forms of lying. So if you want to know what the seven are, here they are. (laughs) There's the error. Uh, Error is a lie that is a mistake. Uh, This is where you believe that you're being truthful, but what you're saying is, is not true. Second is omission. This is leaving out relevant information. This one's easier and it's less risky because it, it doesn't involve inventing new stories it's, it's kind of a more passive form of deception. Number three is restructuring. This is, this is kind of distorting the context, saying something in sarcasm or changing characters around or altering the scenes. Number four is denial. This is refusing to acknowledge a truth. Uh, the range here can be quite large in the sense that sometimes denial will be refusing to acknowledge something that's true to others. 
Uh, and then the other end of that continuum is refusing to acknowledge something that is true to ourselves. Number five, minimization. Uh, this is reducing the effects of a mistake or judgment in order to get relief, in order to defend yourself. This one's very painful uh, for those on the receiving end of minimization, especially when we've hurt somebody. This is the, uh, I, I don't know why you're upset, I didn't mean to hurt you, um, that part. Number six, exaggeration. Uh, representing ourselves as greater as better, as more experienced or more successful. And then finally, fabrication, and that's just deliberately telling a false story, making stuff up, right? These are seven ways that we can be dishonest. That's how we lie. But why do we lie? That's the question. Why are we so drawn to present to the watching world Anything except for the full unvarnished truth. What drives us in that? What's going on inside of us there? And that's what I want us to get at today when we look at this story about Ananias and Sapphira. But first, I just want to point out the elephant in the room with this passage, and that is this is a hard text. It just is. It's a hard passage. And because it is the approach we should always take with passages like this is lean into them. We should never try to explain these things away. We should lean in and say, okay, what's happening here? What, what, why is this in the Bible? So what I want to do is I want to first recall the context for this passage. Um, so this is in Acts chapter 5. The first several chapters of the book of Acts are telling us about the formation of the early church. Right? And so even in the previous chapter, Acts chapter 4, we learn that the early church was banding together to care for one another because they had become a community quickly, and it was a community that had needs. There were people there who, who were poor, who, who didn't have basic uh, things that they needed for survival, and there were others who were well off, uh, who were, and they were coming together to, to pool their resources to make sure that, that anyone who had need, that need was met. And so, and so that's what was happening. Mercy ministry was underway here in the early church, people caring for each other. And whenever that happens, whenever there is an opportunity to serve the poor, there is a temptation to try to make ourselves look good in the eyes of others because we're serving the poor. So we can even take our service to the poor and leverage it and spin it in order to really reflect well on us. It's a temptation to, to kind of steal credit for being great. And so I want to break this passage down. And, and just kind of, how in the world do you even talk about a text like this? Because, because it's so... Unlike, it's, it's one of the most terrifying passages in the New Testament because it's in the New Testament, the New Testament, right? So it's the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and, and what, it's, what I want to ask is, is this story telling us that if you lie or if you are not generous, then God will strike you dead where you stand? Is that what we're to gain from this passage? 
I have to say, by right of the fact that I'm standing here, that that can't be it, right? That can't be the point. Remember that the early chapters of Acts were written during a time when the Lord was doing a lot of things kind of at a heightened level. There were a lot of miracles and healings being performed. Uh, There were lots of manifestations of the power and the presence of God that were happening, and they were happening in order to establish the name of the Lord among his people. And so that's part of the context in which the Ananias and Sapphira story happens. Still, people died here. There's a part of me that would like to skip this passage. Uh, In fact, with RUF Sunday last week, we made the decision to cut one of the Acts sermons in order to let the RUF guys pick a passage that they wanted to preach on. And so I had the opportunity to cut Ananias and Sapphira. And I just, I just didn't think that was the right thing to do because this is an important passage for us to lean into. There's a part of me that would like to cut stuff like this and not talk about it. Although, if I'm being honest, I kind of love passages like this. Um, love preaching them. But then there's another part of me that would like to kind of soften the passage by apologizing uh, on God's behalf for, uh, (laughs) you know what's so funny is I wrote that down in my my notes as as a very sober sentence and it came across as a very funny sentence. You just never know how these things are going to turn out, how these things are going to play in a live room. But I would. There's a part of me that would like to apologize for God, assuring you that these events are anomalies, but it's, it's here, and I believe that God does not make mistakes. That's foundational to our faith. And so I, as your pastor, then have to repent of such tendencies because, as we're going to see, for me to want to soften or dismiss this text, especially, is in a way to share in Ananias and Sapphira's particular sin of living as though God is not aware or worse, not holy. So what happened? What happened in this passage? What did Ananias and Sapphira do? Well, as church members, they did what other church members were doing. And that is they sold their possessions and gave the proceeds to the apostles who used those funds for the work of the church. We read about this in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, Barnabas had done the exact same thing. He had sold some of his possessions and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Here's what Ananias did. He kept part of the proceeds for himself. This was not the sin. You know that? That wasn't the sin. The sin was not that Ananias kept part of the proceeds for himself. But as we see when Peter confronts Sapphira later, Ananias had lied, saying that the amount that he gave was the full amount that they received for the property. So what happened is Ananias and Sapphira agreed together to misrepresent their generosity in order to make their gift and sacrifice look greater than it really was. So 
What was the sin involved? It was when Ananias gave his gift, he led everyone to believe that he gave everything that he had gained from the sale, which was not the case. And it's this deception, it's this deception, not the amount that he gave, which led to God's judgment. How can I say that? You may be wondering, are you sure? I can say that because of the context of what's happening in the book of Acts. We read in other places, even at the end of the previous chapter, that people were giving, quote, what they had decided in their hearts to give. And so what that means is people were thinking through what their contributions to the church should be. Nowhere do you find a directive that people are to give all that they have. They are to give what they have decided before the Lord in their hearts to give. The apostles didn't decide this for them. And so Ananias was free to give whatever he wanted. Whatever he wanted. And he and Sapphira gave. And they probably gave a lot of money because they sold property. But what they decided in their hearts to do was to deceive people and to represent their gift as larger than it truly was. Uh, The pastor and theologian Robert Rayburn said it this way. He said, Ananias wanted to look like an especially good Christian without actually having to be one. I do that, just so you know. What happened as a result? Peter's response ought to chill us, really. Because he tells Ananias in verse 4, all of it was yours. This is my paraphrase, but he says this in verse 4. You can see it there. All of it was yours to do with as you pleased. You were free to give as little or as much as you wanted. But what you wanted to do was to contrive a scheme that would make you look more generous than you really are. And you wanted glory for that. And this deception of yours wasn't against men. It was against God. And then three astonishing things happen. The first is God strikes Ananias dead. The second thing that happens is at an interval of three hours later, his wife arrived and Peter confronted her asking Notice what he asked her, was this the amount you sold the property for? And she says, yes, that's the full amount. And then she dies. And the third thing that happens is a great fear comes over the people. A great fear comes over all who heard it. Now, how do we respond to this? Because here's the thing, you and I commit the exact same sin. We do. Most of us have done what Ananias and Sapphira did. You may say, I've never done that. I've never sold property and laid the proceeds. Okay, but have you ever wanted to appear like you were more charitable than you know yourself to be? Have you ever agreed in conversation with others that Christians ought to be generous as though generosity was your practice when you knew it wasn't. This is what Ananias did, and we commit the same sin, often without thought or fear of God. 
What does this say about what we believe about God? It says we function as though he either doesn't notice or he doesn't care. And that is the tragedy of the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Not a dollar amount. God already owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need their money. But as the church is forming, and as the church is finding out who it's going to be before him and before one another, early on, to establish a rhythm where we behave as though God doesn't notice us or care would be the end of it. And it's not just what we do with our finances here either, by the way. The desire to appear better than we really are sweeps across every facet of our lives. We want to seem more professional in our work than we really are. We want to look like better parents or husbands or wives or lovers or friends or sons or daughters than we know ourselves to be. We want to appear more educated and successful and creative and industrious, and prolific, and righteous than we know we really are. And so we plan schemes to do this, and then we pull those schemes off. And most of the time, we get away with it, at least as far as anyone around us knows. So what are those schemes for you? As long as we're meddling in each other's lives... What schemes are you pulling off right now? What are the lies that you're telling to paint yourself in a better light? We're leaning in, right? This is heavy. There's gospel in this passage. And it's this. God is real. He's real. He's knowable. He's everything he has declared himself to be. In his word, we're all tempted to try and paint ourselves in the best light possible. But the gospel truth is, the good news is, we don't have to. We don't have to paint ourselves in the best light possible. The truth is, God is very aware of everything we do, of everything we think of every lie we tell, of every exaggeration and omission and misrepresentation and fabrication. He knows. He's aware of all of it. And what this passage is telling us as a warning, but also as an invitation to grace, is that he's aware of all of that and he is every bit as holy and mighty as he's ever been. And we need both of those things to be true. We need it to be true that God knows everything about us, sees it all, and that he is holy. God has not lowered his standard of righteousness, not one bit, ever. But for we who could not measure up, his son Jesus has met that standard for us. 
the God of the Bible, the God of today, is holy. He's holy. He knows all and he sees all. And our lives and our eternities are in his hand. And they are in no one else's hand. Not even our own. And so when you spin the truth to paint yourself in a better light, it's because there's a part of you, some part of you, that believes you have to have something else. That believes that you have to have the approval of others for your life to be worthwhile. You have to have the esteem and the recognition of others for all of the things that you sacrifice in order to be the person that you are. And what this does is it reveals something that we harbor deep down, and it's this belief that God isn't enough. And for some of us, we're so deep into this duplicity that if God were to break us free from it, if he were to set us free from the web of lies that we've constructed to live in, it would be kind of like a death. Because nothing would be left as it is. And so we're tempted. We're tempted to live as though he isn't real. And that our acceptance and worth in life must then come from the favor that we hold with other people. But there's only one assessment. There's only one assessment of our worth that remains for all eternity. There's only one opinion of us that lasts. And it's not your opinion of yourself. There's only one determination of our worth that's real for all eternity. And that is God's determination of our worth. And so what this text is calling us to do is to live as though God is real. It calls us to fear him. Not like we would fear an intruder, but a reverential fear. It calls us to fear him. And this was the effect that what happened to Ananias and Sapphira had on the early church, as it should for us. It's why I dare not soften the passage and say, nothing to fear here. Ananias and Sapphira died as the result of their sin. They are the only two that we hear of this happening to in the book of Acts. Although, no doubt, countless others had committed and continue to commit very similar sins. But the writer of Acts tells us that as each one died... All who heard it were filled with fear. And that's important. It's important because if God is holy, if God is all-powerful, if his demand for righteousness could be satisfied only by the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, then we should fear him. We should and so then, it is grace when God calls us to fear him. It's grace when he calls us to fear him. 
Why? Because he's calling us to relate to him as he really is. If we're prone to forget that God is holy, which we are, it is gracious of God to call our hearts to fear him. If we're prone to seek glory for ourselves, though God alone is to be glorified, it is grace that teaches our hearts to fear him. If we're prone to live as though God isn't real, it's grace that he would arrest our hearts with a fear of his holy and present power. See, the fear of the holiness of God is a gift because God is, in fact, holy. And to regard him as anything less is to miss who he truly is, is to miss the one who has redeemed us through the life and the death and the resurrection of his son who committed no sin. But to fear God as holy and righteous, as the giver and the taker of life, and bow before him and worship, that's grace. Because we're not worshiping him as we might like him to be. Soft, forgetful, blind. But we're worshiping as he truly is. Holy, awesome, and the Lord of all. And this is a gift because it's an invitation for us to commune with him as he really is. The God who created the heavens and the earth and the God who knows us and knows our names, the lover of our souls. And so as we process a passage like this, may the one true, holy, eternal loving, gracious God give us the freedom of a holy fear of him. Let's pray. Father, I confess that when I read a passage like this, there's a part of me that objects, that objects to the strength of your response that objects to what appears to me if I look at it in a certain way an inconsistency that you dealt with Ananias and Sapphira with a level of severity that you didn't deal with others and yet even as I say that if I were to ask for that consistency I would not be here and so Lord Forgive us for trying to make you into the kind of God that we want. For a God who's just kind of cool with whatever. And instead, give us a reverence for your holiness. Because the more deeply we understand your holiness the more magnificent we understand was the sacrifice of your son to reconcile us to you. That the chasm was wide, hopelessly wide, if we were to save ourselves. But you have redeemed. Thank you, Lord, for calling your church early on to revere you 
to remember your holiness, your watchfulness, lest the church slip into an entity that behaves as though you don't really pay attention or that you're not even really real, but that we're just adhering to some kind of a social construct. Lord, even as I pray these things, I don't, I don't know the depth of what I'm asking. Asking us as a church to stand in awe of your holiness, to fear your name, to revere you. Uh, Lord, the ways that we see that happen in scripture um, invariably cause people to tremble on the Mount of Transfiguration with Ananias and Sapphira countless other places where your spirit appears, where your presence appears, and people are just undone. Lord, as we are a church that loves to laugh and we have fun and we enjoy each other, may that never eclipse a reverence for the holiness of your name but may instead the holiness of your name and the sacrifice of Christ be the cause and the reason for our joy. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.